a newscaster came on and was talking about this horrible new canine disease that was killing dogs. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself, man, I'm glad we don't have that here. And that afternoon, we started seeing cases of it. From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, Media Coordinator for TVMA. The COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted so many aspects of our daily lives, from where and how we work and how students learn, to how we interact with people in public and keep in touch with our family and friends. In the veterinary medicine profession, many veterinarians and their staff are doing curbside service. But this is not the first time that the veterinary medicine community has faced a pandemic. I'm not talking about a pandemic that affects humans, but one that affects dogs. I'm talking about parvovirus, parvo for short. If you're a veterinarian or work at a clinic, you know what parvovirus is. But if you're a pet owner listening, or if you've never heard of it, it's a highly contagious virus that affects the GI tract. The virus spreads by direct dog-to-dog contact and contact with contaminated feces, environments, or people. This is according to the American Veterinary Medical Association. When it first emerged in the 70s to early 80s, veterinarians were scrambling to figure out what this virus was and how to treat it. They also were waiting on a vaccine to get this disease under control. Sound familiar? Well, to get a feel for what this time was like about 40 years ago, I brought on a veterinarian and a licensed veterinary technician. Kelly Richardson is the LVT. He was working at a private practice in Dallas at the time. His dear friend and colleague, Dr. Tony Myers, was the owner of a different Dallas-based clinic. In 1979-1980, Dr. Myers also was working in an ER clinic on the weekends. First, here's Dr. Myers. I can start out with a little bit of a story. In 1976, uh, there was a veterinary student at Texas A&M that had a litter of Boiseau uh, puppies, and they had unrelenting diarrhea, and she did all kinds of diagnostic tests, did fecal samples, did fecal smears from culture, and uh, didn't come up with any kind of an answer. And she tried different therapies to no avail. The dog just kept getting worse and worse. They continued to grow and thrive, but they could not get the diarrhea to stop. There's a diagnostic lab at Texas A&M, and there was a Dr. Euster there that suggested they look under the electron microscope. And when they did that, they were able to identify the parvovirus uh, as early as 1976. And a few years later, veterinarians started seeing dogs with unrelenting vomiting, bloody diarrhea. And this was before we knew about parvovirus. So when you saw a dog with those kind of symptoms, you you thought, well, maybe this dog has an intersusception or a uh, telescoping of the intestine. <clears throat> and several times, exploratory surgeries were done, and there was no intersusception. But some veterinarians would take an intestinal biopsy and send it into the diagnostic lab, and they would come back with a diagnosis of 
parvovirus, and this was as early as 1978. And the diagnostic lab suggested to them, you know, you better start uh, vaccinating dogs and puppies with feline distemper vaccine, mm-hmm. which is all uh, feline distemper is also a parvovirus that's uh, related to uh, the, the parvovirus that occurs in dogs. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of where the origin was, at least in Texas. No, nobody really knows where the virus came from. The, most of the speculation is that it was some kind of mutation from feline distemper. Kelly, do you have something to add to that? Well, I, we're kind of like what you said, uh, and uh, around 1980, we just, um, it, we fell into it. We had a little bird dog puppy, a little, uh, uh, pointer came in one night. He was about 12, 14 weeks old, came in late, and he was uh, had vomiting and diarrhea. And we treated him uh, kind of our normal way. We gave him sub-Q fluids for, for maintain hydration. Uh, we gave him, at that time, uh, we didn't have all the really good uh, drugs for as anti-emetic, so we used a drug called Dorbazine, and we gave him that. And uh, we uh, scripted out... Uh, something for the diarrhea well the puppy died overnight Mm -hmm. and that really shocked us Mm -hmm. because we didn't perceive him as having something really that bad because he kind of came to us a little early if he really knew it was parvo but we didn't know what it was so dr hosick said we should probably take some biopsies of this uh, puppy's intestines send it to the diagnostic lab because I've been reading about a virus that could be affecting our canine population. So we did, and it came back parvovirus. So mm-hmm. that was kind of a, the door that swung open real wide and kind of opened our eyes as to what was going on. And uh, I was, when it really kind of hit here in Dallas, I had taken a week's vacation and just to stay home, get a few things done going into the summer. And uh, Dr. Hosey called me. He said, I know you're on vacation, but can you come back to work? And I said, sure, what's going on? He said, we're, we're, we're getting inundated. We don't have enough people here to take care of the, of the sick animals. Mm-hmm. So I went back to work. And from there, it was um, one of those summers that it was 1980. Uh, it was the summer that it was 60 days of over 100 degrees, which that, that made a big difference in the, in the uh, virus itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, just it seemed like it, if you were, had a dog that you were treating, if he wasn't inside air conditioning, if people were keeping him outside, that was going to be a real detriment or the likelihood of him surviving and staying outside during the treatment was very small, very small. He had to be in a, controlled environment or your your chances of saving his life is going to be very small uh we at my our clinic we started once we realized what we were dealing with uh we we got aggressive with it we we placed iv catheters we hospitalized them we kept them on around the clock iv fluids we used uh, ampicillin every eight hours we gave them atropine every eight to twelve hours we kept them super clean, mm-hmm. super clean. And that is key right there, keeping them clean. 
and keeping them trained, good nursing. And we surprisingly had a, um, a pretty good um, uh, outcome for most of our patients. And I, I'm sure Dr. Myers will tell you the same thing. If you have a, a patient uh, under the age of about 10 weeks, your chances of success are small. Mm-hmm. Anything older than eight weeks, your chances are really good. Uh, the older they get, they, if they get the virus, they their chances of success of uh, a successful outcome is very good. We're kind of like battling, kind of like what we are today. We we didn't really have a way of testing for it. We didn't really have a uh, uh, a vaccine it, like Dr. Myers talking about the feline distemper vaccine. That was the best we had. So yeah, I, I remember. I remember the spring of 1980 that uh, I was on my way to work one day, and the newscaster came on and was talking about this horrible new canine disease that was killing dogs. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself, "Man, I'm glad we don't have that here." And that afternoon, we started seeing cases of it. And it's like uh, Nurse Richardson said. Uh, you know, you had to be really aggressive with IV fluids and antibiotics and antiemetics. Yeah. Uh, and there were certain breeds of dogs back in uh, 1980. There was a movie about Doberman Pinchers, uh, and Doberman Pinchers were very popular at the time. Uh, unfortunately, they don't have a very good immune system, or at least at that time they didn't. So we saw a lot of German Shepherds, uh, Pit Bull Terriers. Uh, Doberman Pinchers, uh, and it's like Kelly said, you know, uh, if you got a dog that had some age on it and had some size on it, you had some uh, a pretty good chance of saving those puppies. If you had a, a two-pound dog that was six or eight weeks old, uh, you were behind the eight ball, so to speak. Yeah, so it really has a negative outcome on puppies. That's well, the other thing, too, that, that uh, there's comorbidities, if that's the catch word. A lot of those dogs, you know, not only did they have parvovirus, they'd have hookworms and roundworms and intestinal infections. And, you know, if they didn't eat for 24 hours, their blood glucose would go really low. And so you had to do more than just, you know, IV fluids and antibiotics. You had to pay attention to the electrolytes and the glucose. And we really didn't have a good way to measure electrolytes back in the 1980s, or at least most clinics didn't. So we would end up just adding potassium and uh, dextrose to our IV fluids. And for the most part, that seemed to work very well. Yeah, that's true. Uh, The only diagnostic thing that we had, the clinic I worked in, we were fortunate. We had what we call a coulter counter which was a very expensive piece of lab equipment, it would give you your white blood cell count and it would give you a red blood cell count and a hemoglobin. So if a puppy came in and he was vomiting, he was depressed, you draw a blood sample, you run it through that culture counter, which took about two minutes, and you'd have a white blood cell count of 1,000, you had a dog with parvo. But as Dr. Meyer said, we didn't have a good way of keeping up with their electrolytes uh, their glucose. So uh, a lot of the things we did, uh, we were doing a little bit of um, guessing and hoping. Yeah, some of what we did was art and some of what we did was science. And I'm not sure which we did the most of. Yeah, it's nice to have a combination. Right. 
Yeah, because we, we really, when this started, we really didn't have a, a good handle on what we were treating. Right. Uh, and so we were mostly treating symptoms. And, and actually, even today, that's mostly what we do. Uh, you know, try to keep them hydrated, try to keep their glucose and electrolytes in order uh, and keep them warm, keep them clean. Uh, you know, there's not any really good antiviral type drugs that we use in veterinary medicine, especially in a situation like that. And the other thing that would, uh, we, when they're, these puppies are vomiting, Dina, yeah. they, uh, just like in, uh, a young, uh, baby or a very young child, when they vomit, they're in a panic state and mm-hmm. they, they don't really know what they're doing right. and they'll panic. And when they do, they aspirate. So not only did we lose those puppies from the actual uh, virus itself, but we would lose them from aspiration pneumonia. And oh, another thing we at that time we didn't know is its cardiac effect. Mm-hmm. It, once it went, uh, it would get they would get in uh, septic. That virus would make it work its way up to the heart and cause damage there. So we didn't really realize that was going on. We didn't realize this cardiogenic effect. Yeah. So what was the time span between seeing all these symptoms and then figuring out what was exactly going on and how to treat it? Go ahead. Well, incubation period on that disease can vary anywhere from three to four days up until about six or seven days. And early on, as far as diagnosis, like uh, Kelly said, we didn't have a whole lot. We didn't have any specific tests that suggest this is parvo. So we relied on clinical signs and we relied on white blood cell counts being really low. Uh, Today, there are specific tests that tell you, uh, yes, this is parvo. No, it's not. Well, to a good degree, that's true. But back then, we didn't have any definitive way of knowing for sure that that's what we were treating. But the symptoms were pretty, uh, you know, pretty self-explained or, or, uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot else going on that wasn't parvo that presented with those kind of symptoms. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And if you if you were if you even thought you had a puppy with parvo. You better err on the side of caution and start treating him for parvo. Because if you hesitated more than 24 hours to treat this this ten uh, week old dog for parvo, then you done put yourself way behind the behind the game. Yeah, I read on the AVMA website that they can pass away within 48 to 72 hours of onset of those clinical signs, which is without treatment. Without treatment. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it can be either quicker than that. I mean, I guess the most disheartening thing to see would be a litter of eight or ten puppies, and despite your best effort, you know, you'd lose two or three a day until the whole litter was gone. Uh, Wow. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about the emotional aspect of that. So I'm sure that was probably hard for you both to see. What about when it comes to the... Well, tell me about how, how you felt and then also about pet owners, like how you may have had to tell them that, you know, we don't know yet too much about this. So just tell me the overall feeling of this time. Go ahead, Tony. Oh, I don't know. Most people were very appreciative that we were there and that we were trying to help. I don't 
remember people uh, really mm-hmm. going into any kind of a emotional crisis. You know, these were mostly young dogs, and you know, people got them. They had maybe not had enough time to develop a strong emotional uh, tie to the dog, but I don't remember anybody. I mean, any any time you lose a pet, uh, people are upset about that. But you know, I think they realized that we were trying to do the best we could. And as far as the veterinarian, I think we approached that that you know, here's a situation we're in. Uh, we're going to do the best we can and full speed ahead. As a veterinarian, I don't think you can get too emotionally involved, or I think you'd destroy yourself. Yeah. especially with that disease, uh, you know, losing pets every day. So that's very true. Today, I mean, if you contrast uh, that disease, which was like 40 years ago, people's, uh, uh, I think, emotional level is a little different than what it was then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as to- uh, Dr. Meyer said, uh, uh, they didn't have that long to get themselves attached. Of course, some people attach themselves very quick to a puppy. I've had people come in my office and they've bought a puppy at a pet store and it has obviously sick and has some sort of defect and we'll say, well, you need to take this puppy back. And they've already drawn an attachment to it and they won't do it. Uh, But the thing of it is today, a lot of people get uh, animals are living so much longer now and we're so much better at saving lives even from the diseases years ago that we couldn't save them from. So we, we, we get, we get attached to these animals. The technician gets attached, the owner gets attached and it's a kind of an emotional burden on the, um, uh, the workers in a, in a veterinary hospital. But kind of Tony said there, we we were kind of in a battle, you might say. Mm -hmm. And at that time we, we didn't really have, um, you come to work and you got a dozen patients on IV fluids. Uh, you don't have time for tears. You really yeah. barely have time to get the job done. Right. You know, and you never, you never let the people around you, your subordinates, think that you're worried. Right. But you you got to keep a positive attitude, or they'll they'll start to fall apart on you. Yeah, my worst experience with Parvo was in the summer of 1980. On a weekend at the emergency clinic, we had 36 animals hospitalized, and 25 of those were uh, puppies with parvo on IV fluids and injections. And I was there with two technicians, and all of a sudden, everybody became a technician because we we tried to do our rounds every two hours. So the first person would go in, uh, clean the pet up, get some fresh bedding. The second person would go in and make sure the fluids were going correctly and given the medication mm-hmm. and the third person would act as a scribe to uh, you know keep notes and make sure the records were up to date and by the time we would get through the two hours where we would examine and treat and record everybody you know it was time to go back and start on the other end so you know that whole weekend there was there was no break she just kept on, kept on. And surprisingly, most of those pets survived to go home on Monday morning or maybe not to go home, but back to the regular clinic. Now there's a, there's a vaccine, which has made a huge difference. I'm curious about, you know, how many lives of 
dogs the vaccine has possibly saved by just uh, prevention? Well, until a vaccine came along, we didn't have any chance against this disease. We were vaccinating with feline distemper vaccine, and I really think that vaccine worked. But we were given uh, an injection two or three weeks later, we'd give another injection as a booster. Mm-hmm. And then we'd ask people to come back every three months because we didn't have any idea how long that protection would last. And then in about 1981, there was a company, a pharmaceutical company called Ginsal that came out with a canine parvo vaccine. And it was a game changer. Uh, you went from seeing a 25 dogs with parvo a week to maybe four or five. Uh, wow. And then... Then we started vaccinating dogs every six months with that canine vaccine. And then uh, we saw that that was working and we went to like a year's vaccine. And now the Parvo vaccine is good enough to where uh, the regular dog will get that like every three years. A, a dog in a high risk situation sometimes still gets vaccinated on a yearly basis. Uh, the, Tony's right there. Uh... Uh, all that that transpired. One, there's only one way to prevent the parvovirus from infecting your pet, and that's getting vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And uh, once we uh, we have combination vaccines in, in the veterinary field, we have one called DA2 PPL, and that's distemper adenovirus type two, parvovirus parvo leptospirosis. So once we combine we got those combination vaccines, then we didn't have to ask the owner, would you like for us to vaccinate for Parvo? You didn't have no option. We were going to vaccinate for him anyway. Okay. Mm-hmm. So once we started doing that, where it's just, it, it, you were just going to get it, period, kind of like in a child at DPT, you were going to get it, period, whether you want it or not. And so once we did that, then you would, we started seeing a, a, a real decline in parvovirus. I have a, a new grad uh, veterinarian working with me. Her name is uh, Katie Morgan. And I said, uh, she graduated in May night, uh, 2019. I said, Katie, what did they teach you about parvo in vet school? She said, not a lot. Hmm. We went over the virus and basically they told us to uh, keep them hydrated and uh, good nursing. Hmm. And so the virus is so so you know down there today uh, that they don't you don't really think about it much until tony called me and said uh, asked me to, if i wanted to do this i said <laughs> sure but i haven't seen it work now again here this is it's kind of a economic area thing okay you yeah. get uh clients where i work clients are very compliant okay you get certain areas where veterinarians have clients who are not compliant mm-hmm. they're going to see parvovirus Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like one of those things people, they, they, they go out and get them a car, but they won't change the oil, you know? So mm-hmm. there are people who get them pet. Yeah. They won't get that pet vaccinated until he gets sick and then they get worried. So yeah. it's going to be a matter of your area and how compliant people are in that area. Right. And so it sounded like it just took about, I don't know, two to three years for the vaccine to become about, or was it longer? Well, it it depends on what you think the starting point is. You know, like I said, uh, there was some diagnosis of parvovirus in 1976 and 1978, but uh, the summer of parvo was 1980. 
Yeah. And actually, I think the vaccine was followed pretty closely after that within a year, or year and a half. Wow. Uh, you know, if it hadn't, we would have, you know, soldiered on for another couple of years. But I, I, it, they came out pretty quick with the vaccine and it was actually a good vaccine. It was uh, I mean, they did their best to get it on the market as quick as possible, but they also provided a good product. Yeah, right. A lot of things you see in medicine, uh, you know, we have a saying in our in the field that it sees us, but we don't see it. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Right, exactly. You know, like we'll have a dog come up with something and we'll say, well, it was seeing us, but we didn't see it. Mm. So that's kind of what we were doing in probably 79. Mm-hmm. We probably had dogs come in with parvo disease. We probably treated it symptomatically. Got it well and went on about its bait. We didn't even know what we were treating. Uh, it's kind of like that one part I said, the DA2 PPL. The dog that comes in with leptospirosis, you you might see it and you're like, well, no, I'll just we'll just put him on some antibiotics and see what happens. Early on in leptospirosis, if you start treating it with antibiotics, it'll it'll, it'll take care of it. So that's probably what happened to a lot of Fargo cases. We treated it symptomatically early. Uh, maybe the dog was older and he just got well. Oh, it seems like those are some of the lucky ones though. Exactly. Just like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you might say the, the COVID virus and people out here, you know? Yeah. Some people get it and they get very, very sick. Some people get it. They get over it real quick. We were doing like dogs that would have the uh, disease. I'm sure Dr. Myers did this too. Uh, we would draw blood samples, we'd draw a big volume of blood, we'd put it in uh, 12 milliliter test tubes, we'd spin it down, we'd collect the serum off of it, put it in another test tube, we'd save it, and then we'd get a puppy in that was really sick with the parvovirus to give us a little extra edge, we would give them this serum because it had the antibodies in it. Mm-hmm. They're doing that now in these people with COVID. Right. Uh, it has its drawbacks, but sometimes, uh, anytime in medicine, sometimes your cure can have uh, drawbacks. Yeah, early on, we would give plasma. Uh, and, and the reason we would give plasma is because the blood proteins would be so low. Early on, what Kelly was talking about, as far as dogs having antibiotics, or excuse me, antibodies, a lot of them didn't have antibodies, but we transfused them with whole blood or plasma you know, just to support their circulation because a lot of those dogs would bleed so much in their intestines, they'd become anemic and their blood proteins would go so low. So early on, a lot of times when we were given a transfusion of blood or plasma, it was to support the anemia and the low blood proteins. And and later on in the disease process or later on in time, uh, when there were dogs that that uh, had been vaccinated and did have antibodies, uh, you know, then what Kelly said about giving them plasma transfusions, hopefully you were also giving those puppies some antibodies along with the uh, plasma. And so you two have both already referenced and compared this to COVID-19, the current pandemic. And that's actually, we have to give credit to Dr. Jeff, he said he listens to the podcast and he was like, I think it'd be so interesting to hear about this virus. It 
reminds me of what's happening with COVID-19 and humans. So I was curious, how, how do you two feel like it's similar? Go ahead, Dr. Myers. Well, they're both viruses. Uh, they're both highly infectious, highly contagious. Uh, you know, the parvovirus is a GI disease, gastrointestinal disease. The COVID, for the most part, is a respiratory disease. Uh, the parvovirus, once it gets in the environment, once it gets in a location or an outdoor location, it's very, very hard to kill. Uh, uh, studies show that in an indoor environment, it can live for like 24 or 36 hours, maybe even longer than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get contamination outside, and you're talking about a virus that can survive for months and, and maybe even uh, a year. Uh, you know, my take on the COVID virus, and I may be mistaken, I don't think it's quite that hardy. I think uh, in an environmental situation, if it's on wood or plastic or stainless steel, I think it's got a longevity of about 24 hours. Early on, when we had parvo cases, we used diluted bleach to, you know, to kill the virus or try to disinfect the area where the puppies were. You know, they're talking about, you know, people washing their hands, which, you know, which is uh, well and good. Uh, and I don't really know that that kills the virus, but maybe it just dilutes it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think parvovirus is a hardier virus than COVID. It's very hard to kill. Uh, you have to use pretty strong. Like I said, we use diluted bleach mm-hmm. uh, to kill it because a lot of the common disinfectants that we had back then, you know, alcohol and hydrogen peroxide and chlorhexidine, you know, didn't touch the parvovirus. Yeah, that's uh, that's basically right. Uh, the uh, COVID virus, on the other hand, is um, the little protective uh, layer around the, the COVID virus is uh, more fragile. That's the reason they want you to wash your hands because it's susceptible to soap, alcohol, <clears throat> ammonium chloride, bleach, whereas the parvovirus, it, it, uh, sun, cold, uh, you wash your hands because you're going to wash that, all that off just about, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, back in the day, the parvovirus changing gloves, the only people that changed gloves was a surgeon. Okay. And we didn't, we didn't wear gloves in the, in the human field, you know, like uh, if, if you, uh, when I went to a dentist years ago, he didn't put on gloves to clean my teeth. So the, the, we, we, we just washed our hands. And so the, the parvovirus uh, is like if you are clean, the old man, the old Dr. Hosey that I worked for, he, his favorite saying was soap and water first, disinfectant second. He, he believed that soap and water was no substitute for it. So it's kind of like what the COVID virus is. You, soap and water, if you use soap and water, you're doing a pretty good job. If you got all the disinfectants, great, you use them. But it really did take a diluted uh, Clorox to uh, actually kill that virus. But as I was saying, our puppies, we were very, we had, we had really good setup because we had uh, cages with uh, Real nice, uh, about eight-inch racks with holes in them that were covered in a real thick uh, vinyl. We could put our puppies in there and IV fluids. They stayed clean, and and we kept them in a cool environment. So 
again here, uh, they're, 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 as Dr. Meyer says, one's respiratory, one's intestinal. Yeah, I guess the only other thing that I would add is, you know, when we got this vaccine in 81 or 82, I really don't know exactly when it was. You know, they talk about herd immunity. And if you get enough animals vaccinated, uh, you know, herd immunity does not mean that nobody ever gets sick anymore. What it means to me, at least, is if you get a an animal that has parvo, you know, and you have, and he's surrounded by uh, a bunch of dogs that have been vaccinated. You know, well, instead of that one parvo puppy infecting a hundred, uh, maybe he infects two or three. And you know, so herd immunity does not mean that nobody ever gets sick again. It's just a way of uh, slowing down and being able to control uh, an outbreak of infection. Right. That's yeah. True. Yeah, and now I'm just curious about, um, because we're talking about COVID-19, how have you two been doing since March? Uh, I've had no problems. Uh, because of my age, when March started, our practice manager felt that it would be better for me not to be at the clinic. And uh, so I didn't work for the first six weeks of the uh, uh, pandemic, uh, mainly because they, my wife has a uh, chronic asthma and they were afraid I'd bring something home to her um, not necessarily me but I, I didn't if I infected my wife she would have a, a hard time of uh, because of her chronic bad asthma so but I myself uh, we've it's uh, fine the, the, the uh, coronavirus it, it's a strain on uh, uh, even though we see a lot of patients it's kind of a strain on, uh, on veterinarians and veterinary technicians because we have to talk to the client on the phone Right. Have them bring their pet up to the door. We take the pet, go to the back, the doctor and the technician take care of the pet, call the client, take the patient back out. Yeah, but we're starting to get used to it. But at first it was really, um, it was very awkward for us. Very awkward. Well, there's even some clients that actually prefer to do business that way or maybe business is not the right word. But uh, I've had a few clients say, after the pandemic is over, uh, can we still continue to <laughs> bring our pet in and like like we're doing now where I don't have to get out of the car and bring it into the clinic? Uh-huh. And so probably after this is all said and done, we'll probably do things both ways. We'll probably allow people back into the clinic and uh, examine their pets while they're standing in front of us. And, and then if there are some clients that uh, want to pull up to the curb and ask us to come get their pets and give them a call or come out and talk to them afterwards. I think we'll probably can, we'll probably continue with some of that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, we sure will. But there, there, I, myself, I kind of miss having the client in the room because, uh, uh, some of these people I've known for years mm-hmm. and, uh, I get, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about other things other than their dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you miss out. I miss out on that. I don't have a lot of time to, to you know just visit with them you know and mm-hmm. so uh, uh basically uh you know uh, the uh part of the coronavirus has changed the way we think things the way we do uh when the parvovirus hit uh, we were under a strain then too because all of a sudden gasoline was in short supply gasoline went up uh we were in an oil embargo 
the whole nation was kind of in a strain. And mm-hmm. so then you threw this on top of your pet owners. Yeah, they started, uh, uh, when you would start to tell somebody how much, of course, prices back in those days, uh, telling somebody it was going to cost them $300 to get their little puppy well, now that was quite a bit of money. And maybe they didn't have that much money because of the prices going up and the job market wasn't all that great. So, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, uh, it was a strain on people. Yeah. And we tried to help people too, you know, if they couldn't afford to have their pet hospitalized and we developed protocols to where we could treat their pet as an outpatient. Uh, and actually there's some protocols that have been developed recently where the success rate of doing that is not, not as good as hospitalizing their pets, but it's, it's pretty admirable really. Uh, there's a Dr. Sarpong here in Dallas that developed a protocol of using uh, anti-nausea medicines, uh, long-acting antibiotics, and I think her success rate, she uh, wrote a paper in the AVMA Journal of two or three or maybe even more pets than that that she treated, and she had an 85-90% success rate treating those patients as outpatients, which is really uh comparable to hospitalizing a pet i think i think a study out of colorado state they had a 90 percent success rate of of treating animals that were hospitalized and about 85 percent uh for clients that were treated as outpatients or patients that were treated as outpatients mm-hmm. that's true I'm, i've i of course you know nowadays if you call up a you call a doctor's office and they ask you if you have symptoms of COVID, they basically really sometimes they don't want you really coming in, you know, because it's such much more contagious. Yeah, and you know, you guys are mentioning the veterinary medicine community. I'm curious how you feel like um, the profession has helped out with COVID because I know that at one point the um, Texas A&M's uh, diagnostic lab was offering to do testing. Do you guys know about that or anything else? I heard about it. I'm not sure that, I mean, I don't know where that went. I think there were some pretty strict restrictions on quality control, that sort of thing. And I'm not sure whether they were allowed to do that or not, but I, I do know what you're talking about. Uh, you know, they had equipment there where they could do, uh, PCR testing, uh, because there's some PCR testing done in pets, dogs, and cats. And apparently the same machine that you use to do PCR testing with pets is the same one that you use in people. The Texas A&M Veterinary Medical Diagnostic Laboratory, TVMDL for short, published an article on its website on April 29th that stated, Despite federal red tape limiting testing capacity, the TVMDL in College Station began limited human testing this week. TVMDL has more testing capability than any public lab in the state. It could run as many as 300 samples per day in its center and Gonzales Labs, another 1,000 per day in Amarillo, and as many as 1,800 per day in College Station. The TVMDL director said, quote, We provide the highest quality service every day to veterinary clients. Although this will be the first time in TVMDL's history to test human clinical samples, 
We have all the equipment, supplies, and expertise to help make a lasting impact in Texas. And another article published on May 27th stated, TVMDL, an Amarillo pathology group, and Physicians Preferred Laboratory have partnered to increase human COVID-19 testing in the Texas panhandle. To learn more about this, please visit the links in the show notes. Back in the 80s in Parvo, there was no lab. A&M was the only really lab that you could really trust, the diagnostic lab at, at College Station in Texas. Uh, there were a few little small private labs, but there were just what that just what I said, small and not a, nowadays we have two big labs called IDEX and Antec, and they're like nationwide. They're well respected. Uh, and a lady a couple of weeks ago wanted to know if we could test her dog for coronavirus. And I'd like, I don't know. So I asked one of the vets, and he's uh, at one point you had to have uh, Judge Jenkins here in Dallas authorize it. Hmm. Because uh, uh, and uh, but now if you want your if you want your dog tested for coronavirus, Antec Laboratories can do it. Uh, but <clears throat> uh, there's been some problems with some of the testing and people, you know, uh, how reliable it is, how many false positives they get. Uh, most of this stuff is ELISA testing, and depending on what stage <clears throat> in any any uh, sickness. That you're testing that lots of tests could give you a false negative it could give you a false positive uh if you had vaccinated the dog for parvo and you run that elisa test it might come up positive just because he's been vaccinated so there are um, there are some flaws in that of course we don't have a vaccine now so the doctors yeah. today on the human side they're in search of a a covid vaccine that's what they want According to the CDC website, no vaccine is yet authorized and recommended to prevent COVID-19. As of November 24th, large-scale Phase 3 clinical trials are in progress or being planned for five COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S. You can find the list on the CDC website. The link to this list is provided in the show notes. One of those vaccines is from Pfizer and its partner BioNTech. They have asked the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to authorize use of their coronavirus vaccines. The other biotechnology company is Moderna. They're getting close to making a similar request for their vaccine. This is according to a Wall Street Journal article published on November 25th. Yeah, I guess the one contribution of veterinary medicine to this is, is our curbside service, that we're still able to provide service to people and good service to people and yet minimize you know, exposure to our staff and minimize exposure to our clients. Is that a dog in the background? <laughs> it is. It's my little um, papillon. She, she's, a, she's the security here at the house. <laughs> um, well, you know, that, that is fitting for this podcast to have a dog around. <laughs> <laughs> Never hurts to have a second opinion. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, the dog was like, I know about this. <laughs> um, I've had friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They've told me about this. Um, yeah, I think what's interesting is I think originally people didn't know if dogs could get COVID. And then eventually a dog did get it. Um, I don't know if you two want to talk about that because I'm also curious about like if there was a time where you two 
were like, I wonder if humans will get parvovirus, like if it was a zoonotic disease. You know, all species, uh, people, dogs, cats, horses, cows, all these species have a parvovirus, but they're not related and they're not contagious, you know, between species. And just about all species have coronavirus too, dogs, cats, people, horses, cows. Uh, So, you know, most species have those viruses, but they're not related. In other words, a person's not going to get infected with parvovirus, or at least I've never heard of that. And I guess I have a little skepticism about pets being infected with coronavirus. Certainly, I guess it's not impossible, but I think the incidence would be extremely low. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Veterinary Services Laboratories, as of November 15th, there have been 35 cases of SARS-CoV-2 in dogs and 49 in cats in the U.S. SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that causes COVID-19 in humans. Unless otherwise specified, the animals had exposure to a probable or confirmed human with COVID-19. The link to this source can be found in the show notes. Is there anything else you two would like to share about uh, parvovirus um, and relationship to uh, COVID in this time or personal experience with any of these? No, I just think a lot of veterinarians that wherever they practice, uh, it's just not an issue nowadays. Again, here, like I say, it's a kind of a, a demographic thing, depending on uh, the area of town you're in. You you may, I, I, we didn't see a same case parvo this year, and I think we might have had one last year. But I was talking to one of our vets, uh, Dr. Herring, and I said, uh, I said, we never see parvo anymore. She said, well, we didn't see any parvo this year, but I saw two cases of distemper. Mm. And I haven't seen distemper. I, last time I saw a case of distemper when I was working with Tony at the emergency clinic. And so, uh, again, there, vaccination, you know, that's that's yeah. the key. So, uh, and the only thing else, you know, <laughs> is just my, my uh, comical side. Uh, Parvo is not a politically driven disease. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> Yeah, the only last comment that I'll make on it is COVID, and I'm certainly, you know, not a physician and not in a position to speak that way, but I just can't see that disease going away until an effective vaccine is developed. And uh, again, what I talked about herd immunity in puppies and dogs, you know, even with a vaccine, you know, it's you're going to be able to control the disease better, but Herd immunity does not mean that nobody will ever get sick with that virus again because they will. It's just that it'll be hopefully a lot easier to contain. Yeah. Yeah. The problem with the, uh, uh, like we, we didn't have a lot of, res- uh, re- of resistance uh, getting the, uh, the people get their dog vaccinated for Parvo because Dr. Hosick made it affordable for the man at the top of the income level and the guy on the very bottom of the income level. And so he wasn't trying to exploit, you know, uh, a situation. So, but there are people with their pets and with people with themselves in our modern scientific community, they will not get a vaccination. 
Mm. And uh, I kind of like when I have people tell me that I ask them, have you ever seen somebody with smallpox? And if you have, then you will believe in vaccines. Uh, yeah, and again, I'd like to add to that. I'm not going to, uh, you know, make any kind of an opinion on whether somebody wants to have vaccines or not. But Kelly will agree with this. If if a person worked in a veterinary clinic kennel in 1980 and uh, then worked in a veterinary clinic in 2020, I don't think you'd have a hard time convincing them that they needed to vaccinate their dog for parvovirus. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you see it firsthand, you want to do everything you can to prevent it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, true. that's the whole key. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting with COVID is, you know, like every day we're getting the number of like, these are the number of confirmed cases, the number of deaths. And it's so hard to hear all of that um, if you're paying attention to it every day. I'm curious if with parvovirus, if they were like giving all those updates, you know, it's different in the time of uh, like social media and Google where things, information can spread so quickly. If that was a thing in 1980 where people were updating that information. I don't think so. If it was, it was not uh, not like like they are with the uh, COVID virus. I don't remember, uh, Doctor Myers. Maybe you you could comment on that. No, the only thing I remember is that there was a lot of camaraderie between veterinarians. That you know, every day you were on the phone to somebody. That, you right. know, hey, I'm using ampicillin. I'm getting better results than penicillin, and you know, I've started adding uh, potassium and glucose to my fluids, and and I'm having more success, but as far as any kind of statistics or any kind of uh, national news, I'm, I'm sure there was some national news, but there weren't any, as far as I know, there weren't any really hard statistics that were being compiled back then. We were too busy to, you know, working. Then there, they might have been in some universities or yeah. uh, something like that. They, they may have kept records like that, but in a general practice, uh, not not anything that I remember. Yeah. No, but I tell you that all the testing that goes on here for the uh, uh, COVID virus, all that data is fed into uh, a public health computer. So mm-hmm. back then, all the testing that was done was uh, there. If there was any testing, was done inside the hospital. You had these very small private little labs, maybe one little lab to a county. There was a guy over in Irving who was the only veterinary lab in Dallas County. I can't remember his last name. His first name was Jimmy. Okay, now today, now if we had some sort of super virus outbreak in the canine or feline uh, world, we have these big labs like IDEX and Antec. So we don't do much testing in-house anymore. All of our testing goes to these labs, okay? Mm-hmm. So they would be, they would be accumulating all this data. And then if there was something real bad, then they could let that news out, okay? Otherwise, as Dr. Meyer said, it was him picking up the phone and calling up his one of his veterinary buddies and say, how's your day go? <laughs> you know, how's it yeah. with Carvo and you? But <laughs> now they accumulate all this data for infectious diseases in, in, in canines and felines and horses because everybody uses these people. And you can get all this data. It's there. They can tell you how many... Giardia cases in one county in 1919, 19, uh, in uh, uh, 2018. Mm-hmm. We didn't have that luxury then that we've got today. 
the medicine in 1980 was not like it is today, you know? Yeah. I'm sure you two can really speak to that. Um, saying is you guys have, have been around for a while. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're a dying breed. <laughs> yeah. I think we're the, I think the reason that we were chosen for this task is that we were the only two people they could find <laughs> from the 1970s and eighties Yeah, that, that were still Dr. around. Dr. Myers has been my friend since 1973. Oh, wow. at one point for four years, he was my client. And then for 10 years, we practiced together at the emergency clinic on Greenville Avenue in Dallas. Wow. Yeah, and I think I learned as much veterinary medicine from Kelly Richardson that I did from anybody else that I've ever known. <laughs> I'll, I'll, you're not drinking early this morning. Uh, not not yet. Uh, I appreciate the comment, but I, I think he's over exaggerating. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> that's so sweet. Um, that's amazing. You guys have been friends for so long. Um, yeah, I mean, it was funny when I reached out to Dr. Myers and I was like, yeah, it'd be great if we could have another person. And he's like, he's like, I'm going to find someone. <laughs> and, I, and so it was really exciting when he found you, Kelly. So I'm so glad that you could join him. Well, thank you. Very good. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Tony, take care. You bet. Goodbye, everybody. All right. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Tony Myers and Kelly Richardson talking about the emergence of parvovirus about 40 years ago. Perhaps this episode has shed some light on the pandemic we're facing. To learn more about this topic, you can find links to the sources I mentioned in the show notes, so feel free to conduct further research. And thank you again to Dr. Jeff Bratton for this episode idea. From the TVMA family to yours, we hope you and your pets are staying healthy and safe. And thank you for tuning in to Veterinary Vitals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein from TVMA. TVMA.